0: Danny for reading that Bible passage for us. Good morning, everybody. May they like to keep that reading open in front of you from Matthew chapter six. We're going to be thinking a bit about that today. Father, may you speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your Holy Scripture. May your words of life Open our eyes and unlock our hearts to see and to receive Jesus as Lord once again today. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Worry is big business, especially in the music industry. Three hit songs come to mind straight away Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin, Don't You Worry About a Thing by Stevie Wonder, and Don't Worry Baby by The Beach Boys. And in my mind, I'm already humming these melodies, and perhaps you will be. And maybe if you take one thing from today, uh, you'll have these, uh, you'll, be <whistles> you'll be whistling away to yourself later on in the day. These three songs all resonate with us because they acknowledge the reality that all of us struggle with worries. And yet the songs also point to a way through, and that's why we love to sing them. It Seems to me to be a universal truth We all worry about all kinds of things. And we're all looking for a way through and beyond our worries. Jesus, in his words, in the Sermon on the Mount that we just heard read to us, invites us, even commands us, to live beyond worry. Well, how then do we enter this life? How can we really get beyond the daily worries which plague our lives? Worry itself is a symptom and not the cause. The cause of our worries is the underlying fears that animate our lives. Worry is the tip of the iceberg that is fear. Sometimes we get a sense from our worries that they're driven by something much more substantial underneath. Sometimes we're able to acknowledge and even confront our fears, but often our fears lie deep below the waterline of our conscious daily lives, and yet they still remain a big part of who we are. So what's the fear that lies beneath the worries that Jesus addresses in this passage of Scripture? It's the fear of shame and exposure, and it's the fear of starvation and death. The worries are about food and about clothes. Look at verse 25. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away. Oh, sorry, that's 26. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Food, clothes. So it's a fear of shame and exposure and a fear of starvation and death. But the fear, in fact, beneath the fear is about social standing and shame because clothes not only cover nakedness, they're also a social indicator of significance, wealth, and success, particularly in the time and the context of Jesus. There's a fear of not having enough food, which is a fear of hunger, starvation, and death, but it's also a fear of failure in the task of providing for ourselves and our families. You see how the worries, if you like, are only the tip of the iceberg the fears which are under the surface are much deeper. Fear is an important and powerful force even more so than worry in motivating our behavior. An article in the Atlantic Journal published last September said this, fear is in the air and fear is surging. Americans are more afraid today than they have been in a long time. Polls show majorities of Americans worried about being victims of terrorism and crime. Numbers that have surged over the past year to highs not seen for more than a decade. Every week seems to bring a new large or small-scale terrorist attack at home or abroad. Mass shootings form a constant drumbeat. Protests have shut down large cities repeatedly, and some have turned violent. Overall crime rates may be down, but a sense of disorder is constant. The article continues and says, fear pervades Americans' lives and American politics. Trump is a master of fear, invoking it in concrete and abstract ways, summoning and validating it. More than most politicians, he grasps and channels the fear coursing through the electorate. And if Trump still stands a chance to win in November, fear could be the key. Remember, this article was published last September. Fear is a powerful force animates our lives, animates our culture. Conventional wisdom suggests that fear is always a bad thing. Fear cripples us, paralyzes us, leaves us wondering how to act and leaves us worrying about the future consequences of our actions. Fear distorts reality and gives us a perspective on life and relationships which can lead to defensive and destructive impulses. And so we seek to overcome fear, to put fear back in its box, to cast out fear with perfect love. But I want to suggest that today we take some time to examine our fears and our worries, and we may find out something about where they come from, and how they can be overcome. Herman Melville's classic novel, Moby Dick, was inspired by real-life events of the early 19th century. In 1819, a large whaling vessel named the Essex set off from Nantucket on a -a two-and-a-half-year whaling expedition. Now, it ran into trouble almost immediately when a large squall nearly sank the boat. Still, it continued past Cape Horn, uh, at the bottom of South America, and into the South Pacific. In 1820, after it had been at sea for a year, the expedition crew came face to face with an enormous and angry whale. The whale was around 85 foot in length. It attacked the ship with such force that the vessel was irreparably damaged and began to sink. The crew had no option but to quickly escape in three emergency escape boats. A man named Pollard, the captain of the ship, was faced with a difficult choice. He had three boats in the water and about 20 men and some emergency provisions. He could either lead them off to the Marquesas and Society Islands, which were closest, or they could head south to try to be picked up by passing ships on the trade routes. Now, his choice in the end was determined by fear. There were three fears for the men, for the crew, to consider. Firstly, it was a long way south to the trade routes, and they feared that they might not make it with inclement weather and winds. The boats just might not survive. Secondly, on a long journey in any direction, they had scarce provisions. They feared that whatever direction they set off in, they might run out of food and water before they reached a destination. Finally, The Marquesas and Society Islands were rumored to be populated by cannibals, and the men feared a grisly death that may await them should they go there. A difficult choice was to be made, and there were fears to face in every direction. But here's the thing about fear. Fear can reveal to us what we truly desire, reveal to us what motivates us, what drives us, what animates us, Once we know what those desires are, we can examine them, we can reflect upon them, and we can determine whether they are healthy desires or not. You see, at the root of all fear lies a story that we tell ourselves about the kind of person we want to be. Fear is rooted in the possible futures that we imagine for ourselves. Fear has to do with how we envisage things turning out, how the story of our lives will unfold. Fear always plays upon imagined stories of our lives, the imagined stories that we wish to avoid. Fear tells us, therefore, what we value and what we desire. As we imagine possible futures for ourselves, we can discern from the futures that we fear the futures for which we long. The things that we fear point us towards the things for which we long. We can learn from our fears what we really desire for our own future. And like so many things, Fear is a great servant and a terrible master. You know, like your smartphone can be a great servant, but a terrible master if you get addicted. Same with food, money, all kinds of things. And fear is similar. If we can get fear out of the driving seat of our lives, put it under the microscope, we can begin to analyze our fears and our worries and learn from them what we truly desire and hope for. Fear, worry, the things that we spend our time worrying about, can help us to understand our lives to understand what we value and in doing so can become a teacher. Fear of failure, worries about whether we're going to muck something up, can reveal to us perhaps an unhealthy desire for success. And tackling this root desire for success might eradicate our fear of failure. It may not be the fear which is in fault in us but rather the misplaced desire. Or perhaps our fear of loneliness may help us realize the value that we place in steadfast, quality relationships in our lives. Once we realize the importance of our relationships, we might be able to prioritize behaviors and attitudes and actions which help our relationships flourish. We might seek out long-term, stable and nourishing relationships with friends, with family, and our church, rather than flitting between the quick thrills of whirlwind romances or... um, new social settings. The things that we worry about tell us about our fears and our fears tell us about what we truly desire. And when we put our desires under the microscope, we can begin to determine what is good for our lives, what comes from God and what comes from our own pride or vanity or some other insecurity. So back to the Essex. At the end of 1820, what did Pollard, captain of the sunken Essex, decide to do with his three boats and his 20 men? What direction did they take? Which fear drove their decision? Pollard wanted to lead them to the Marquesas and Society Islands. They were almost certainly the closest lands, and they afforded the best chance of survival. He feared that they didn't have sufficient provisions to survive the long journey south to the trade routes. But Pollard's first mate, a man named Owen Chase, had heard that the Marquesas and Society Islands were populated by cannibals. He and the rest of the crew were determined that they should avoid these islands at all costs. Well, it turned out later that these fears were unfounded. There were documents that showed that traders had been visiting the islands without incident. But their fear of a grisly death at the hands of barbarous exotic tribes was greater than their fear of starvation. They set off south, and in only a few weeks, they discovered that their meagre rations had left them on the brink of starvation. One man went mad with hunger and thirst and died overnight in one of the boats. How did the men respond? Owen Chase, the first mate, wrote in a journal, Humanity must shudder at the dreadful recital of what came next. Irony of ironies, he continued to explain that the crew, quote, separated limbs from his body and cut all the flesh from the bones, after which we opened the body, took out the heart, and then closed it again, sewed it up as decently as we could, and committed it to the sea. Then they roasted the man's organs on a flat stone and ate them. Their fears of cannibalism had been realized, but not as they had expected, rather in their midst. Indeed, their unfounded fears about cannibalistic islanders had perhaps planted a seed of a thought in their minds so that even as they fled from cannibalism, they actually drifted towards it. Fear of death drove the crew of the Essex, but their fear of a grisly death was greater than their fear of starvation. Their fear reveals not just the desire for life, but the desire to avoid pain. What do our fears and worries reveal to us about our desires. And if we scrutinize our desires, are they healthy desires, following God's heart, or are they desires that are set after false gods? It seems as though the worries that Jesus uses as examples in Matthew 6 are to do with not just a healthy desire for life, but also about social status and standing. As we've seen, the questions, what should we eat, what should we drink, what should we wear, are partly to do with our significance in the eyes of others. These worries are driven by pride. The desire to be perceived as important and special, successful in the eyes of others. And even more, pride is the desire to be recognized as having importance and significance beyond others. Not just in the eyes of others, but beyond others. Pride is essentially competitive Pride seeks our own uh, significance or growth in uh, furtherance and our betterment at the expense of others even. It can become destructive when we seek the downfall of others for our own advantage. And Jesus urges his followers to shun this path. The worries motivated by pride, vanity, and arrogance must be forsaken just as the pride, vanity, and arrogance themselves are forsaken. The worries about our capacity to provide for ourselves have to do with our trust in God as provider. Every worry about our capacity to provide for ourselves reveals to us a lack of trust in God as provider. Let me say that again. Every worry about our capacity to provide for ourselves reveals to us a lack of trust in God as provider. This is really profound, actually. We spend so much of our time worrying about how we're going to make ends meet, pay the bills, get the things we want, have the clothes we want, have the food we want, have the holidays we want, the stuff we want, provide for our children the stuff we think they want or need. It can drive us, animate us. And all of the time it seems to reveal to us a, a basic lack of trust that God will give us what we need. God will provide for us all that we need. How did Jesus suggest that we tackle this? How do we overcome these worries. Well, I think Jesus does two things. I think he shows us a path by how he lives, and I also think he tells us some things in what he says. Jesus' very life exhibited the kind of trust in God's goodness that overcomes worries. Tom Wright puts it this way He says, Jesus had a strong, lovely sense of the goodness of his Father, the creator of the world. He seems to have had the skill of living totally. In the present, celebrating the goodness of God here and now. I think that's true, isn't it? I mean, we know that Jesus had moments of deep angst. We know that he wept at the death of his friend. We know that he suffered pain and he had compassion upon people. But he never strikes you when you read the Gospels as the kind of man who wandered around worrying about things, does he? Can you imagine Jesus worrying about stuff? I don't think he was fretful or anxious or worried. He seemed to know just trust in a profound way in the goodness of God his Father. He seemed to be able to live in the present. Fully entering into the joy, rejoicing with others, fully entering into people's needs and pain, overcoming them with healing. But as well as this example, Jesus also tells us how we can set our priorities in such a way that we can overcome our worries. So verse 33 is a key verse here. Seek first, god's kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well now by all these other things jesus is referring to our basic needs of life food clothing shelter one wise old friend used to remind me jesus promises that god will meet all our needs but not necessarily all of our wants those things that we do need god will provide if only we will put him first It's a question of priorities. Again, Tom Wright puts it this way. Put the world first, try and seek after all these other things, food, clothes, status, significance, power, money, success. Put the world first, and you'll find it gets moth-eaten in your hands. Put God first, and you'll get the world thrown in. Because Jesus doesn't ask us to spurn the good things of creation. We're not asked to become austere and ascetic, despising food or clothing. Jesus enjoyed food and drink and a party as much as anyone. Indeed, when Jesus was crucified, do you notice the soldiers cast lots for his clothing? Well, they would only do that if the clothes were any good. I don't know whether it was a Ted Baker suit or something, but it was, a, you know, it was certainly a kind of, it, it wasn't shoddy, austere rubbish. But Jesus does say we should put as our first priority, our desire for God's kingdom and his righteousness. Let's just pause and imagine a world in which everybody did seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Imagine a world in which peace, forgiveness, love, kindness, holiness, purity, justice, compassion, and grace were the first desire of all people. A society which wasn't self seeking or self serving, but which was set after God's kingdom. Imagine that world. How glorious it would be. Well, if you can't imagine that world, then imagine your own life. Imagine you could put God's kingdom and righteousness first, trusting that your needs would be met. Imagine yourself set upon love and mercy, peace and righteousness, kindness and goodness, forgiveness. And justice. Imagine how your life would feel. Imagine how liberated you would be. Imagine how much freedom you would experience. Imagine how your worries and your concerns would fall from you. Well, Jesus promises that we can have this life because of his death and resurrection. At the cross, Jesus has restored for us that right relationship with God that is required of righteousness. Our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God, our Heavenly Father. And not only that, but Jesus has also poured out upon us the Holy Spirit. God with us as living presence. Our lives can now be animated not by fear and by worry, but by the love and joy of God. All this because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. All this because of Easter, all this because of Pentecost. It's our secure status as beloved children of God, daughters and sons of the living God, that sets us free from fear and worry. We can't tackle our worries and our fears by sort of suppressing them, trying to pretend they don't exist, trying to kind of deny them and crush them. We can only overcome our worries and our fears by focusing on that which is greater, that which is truer, that which is purer, that which is higher. And then what happens is it's like those um, sort of advertisements or commercials in proportion and perspective. You know, the sort of, have you ever seen those kind of advertising billboards where there's sort of um, a giant, enormous kind of bottle or something with a tiny, tiny person, and then you realize that the camera is right by the bottle and the person's way off in the distance, and it's actually just a false perspective. That's one of the problems, I think, that we face, is that our fears and our worries become front and center in the the camera of our lives, in the lens of our lives, and they take on a greater proportion than they have in reality. It's only by focusing on God, who is greater higher, more wonderful, more loving, that our fears and our worries will diminish. Our outward lives now, because of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit living in us and animating us, can be the tip of the iceberg of love, joy, hope, and peace that is ours in Christ. So that all that lies beneath the surface of our conscious waking lives is the more substantial, the more profound, and more blessed and glorious reality of Christ in us. If you feel overwhelmed by worries and by fears, set your gaze upon the one who has forgiven you, who has reconciled you to God who has restored you to fullness of life, because you are a child of God. Your heavenly Father will provide all that you need. So do not fear and do not worry. Fix your gaze upon Christ. Would you like to stand? Let's pray together. may just wish to close your eyes and reflect on what the Lord may have been saying to you this morning if we are honest with ourselves there's not one of us who has not struggled some stage or another with crippling worries and anxieties about our life there's not one of us who has not suffered uh, fear about our future about our significance There's not one of us who has not suffered from a fear of failure, a fear of death, a fear of abandonment and rejection. But we are not slaves to fear. We have been set free by Christ. And so, Father, we pray now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon each one of us here in this place. And may your Holy Spirit make real to us again, afresh, anew today. That deep and profound reality. That we have all that we need in Christ. And still just with your eyes closed, if you know that there is a particular worry or a particular fear that you are wrestling with right now may even have caused you some sleepless nights this week maybe causing you to feel anxious this morning we don't need to suppress or deny pretend that that fear is not real but hold it before the lord and allow your gaze to be fixed upon jesus so that the worry and the fear decreases in proportion.